Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. There's three steps. None of them are good. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. That's pretty impressive, <laughs> picking up the whole gates. But uh, like I said, this first verse has three things that Samson did, and none of them are good. Number one, he goes down to Gaza, which is one of the five Philistine city-states. He had no business being there. Number two, he saw a prostitute. Now, I don't know where he was hanging out that this happened, but he probably shouldn't have been there. And he went into her, and he definitely should not have done that. I mean, that, that sentence will preach on its own, because this is... A great miniature version of what's going to happen in the rest of this chapter to the life of Samson. This is the downward spiral of judges reaching almost all the way to the bottom. We've looked at all the different judges, the different characters that have come through, the major judges, even some of the minor judges. And starting with Othniel and Ehud, they were pretty great. There's nothing negative said about Othniel. And even Ehud, who perhaps didn't attain to the same level as Othniel, was still a great man and a, and a godly one, too. But as it's gone down through Barak and Gideon, there's more questionable things going on, especially when you get to guys like Jephthah, and now Samson. And the only stories we have after this chapter, we've seen all of the judges that we're going to see. There's only two more stories, and they are horrific stories. And neither one is one that I want to spend too much time talking about, but they're in there. So this is about as bad as it can get while still having what you could call a judge or a man of God in the centerpiece here. So he goes to Gaza, which again is a Philistine city-state. He visits a prostitute. And Samson is almost captured because they found out what was going on. And so they say, well, wait until the morning and then we're going to go in and we're going to take Samson. You wonder why they didn't go in the middle of the night and capture him. Uh, it doesn't say, so maybe they were scared. Uh, but he gets up in the middle of the night. The gates are barred. What's he going to do? Well, he lifts the gates and rips them out of the ground and carries them away to Hebron, which was 40 miles away. And he stuck them on the hilltop. And what does this story really contribute to this, this narrative as a whole? Not much other than, man, if a guy does something like that, it better be in the Bible, huh? That's pretty impressive. <laughs> And he takes it, by the way, to Hebron, which is the capital of, this, of the region of Judah. And the Judahites were the ones that had refused to help him and had delivered him over to the Philistines in the previous chapter. So maybe this is a little bit of a in-your-face kind of thing. Like you could have been part of this, but what do I need you for? I can carry the gates off all on my own. I don't need to explain to you this is something that would have been impossible apart from the strength that the Holy Spirit had given to him. But in this little story, we are reminded of the profound contrasts that existed within the person of Samson. That if we just wanted to focus on the positive aspects of Samson, it'd be very easy to do that. He did a lot of very good things that are worth imitating and worth celebrating. But if we wanted to just focus on the negative aspects of Samson, boy, it'd be pretty easy to do that too. He did a lot of messed up stuff that you should not imitate. But this is not, either one of them would give you a complete picture of the man himself. We see that after 20 years, it's been 20 years that he will end up judging Israel. For all of his mighty power, that gate lifting up, lion ripping apart power, he still has a weakness. 
And Samson's weakness is the same weakness of a lot of men, and that's the ladies. And it would seem to be especially the Philistine ladies. Now, maybe Samson had dalliances with a lot of women, but the instances with the Philistines are the only one that got him in danger. And it also could very well be that this was not a pattern in Samson's life, but that these are the only instances in which something like this happened. But you certainly get a picture of a rather undisciplined individual. And what I like about Samson, or at least what I relate to in Samson, is every one of us in this room is a similar combination of incredible potential, but regrettable weakness. Everybody in here. If we're to tell your life story, I could focus on all the negative things in your life and make you look pretty bad. Just like I could also just focus on the positive aspects of your life and nobody would think, you know, that you ever did a thing bad in your entire life. But we need examples like Samson, who probably has the strongest contrast in the Bible, the highest highs and the lowest lows, to be a negative example to drive us away from temptation. And that's what we're going to see here. But we are going to get rather specific and pointed tonight. It, it would be very easy, as I've usually heard this preach, to be general about not letting whatever your issue is prevent you from serving the Lord. But this chapter focuses on the weakness that men have for women and women who will take advantage of that weakness. And so that is what we are going to discuss tonight, because if that's the example the Bible uses, it's something we need to talk about. And in fact, the Bible has quite a bit to say about this subject. So as we get into the story of Samson and Delilah, keep this in mind that Samson is a complicated figure like we all are. And we all have these strengths, but also these weaknesses. And following Christ is learning to let the Holy Spirit take away those weaknesses as you say no to them so that you can walk in the strength that he's given you. Verses 4 and 5. After this... He loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver." You would not believe how many words I read in paragraphs, people speculating about why it was 1,100 and not around 1,000. Th th these are things I go through for you people, is <laughs> having to read stuff like, like it matters, right? Well, this is about 20 years after the Jawbone story. So Samson is probably, we don't know his age when he started, so probably around 40 years old at this point, maybe a little bit younger, maybe a little bit older. But it's about 20 years later. And we find Samson in love again. And I don't think that because it says Samson loved this woman, that there's something more pure about his relationship with her. I think it's just his way of Samson fell in love again. Maybe you know somebody who's always fallen in love over and over again. I don't think that it cheapens the New Testament use of the word love you remember Samson's name in Hebrew is Shimshon, and it was related to the word for sun. So his name could be sunshine, which is very interesting because Delilah's name, as much as we can tell, is related to the Hebrew word for darkness. So by having the two of them together, there, there are some who actually believe that her name might be a, a, an ironic pun on the fact that she was a lady of the night. Like literally, Delilah might be her name. There's some disagreement about that, but... That's what's going to happen to Samson as we go through. It does not say that Delilah was a Philistine. 
It is entirely possible that she was an Israelite, but it does seem more likely that she was a Philistine because the five lords come up to her, and you would think that the Bible might have something to say about that if this was an Israelite woman betraying him. Well, she's bribed by these men. Remember, there were five Philistine city-states, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, and uh, Ekron were the five. And they were governed as city-states because they came from a uh, more Greek structure politically. It's where they came from, was across the sea. So rather than having one nation, they had the city-states similar to how the Greeks did. And so they said, we'll each give you 1,100 pieces of silver, which was a lot of money, to seduce him and find out what makes him so strong. Now, why would they go through this tactic? It might seem like an obvious question, and it kind of is, but we live in an age where we want to pretend that we don't know these things and that they somehow don't exist, although the Bible is rather open about it. These men understood, as the Bible does, that men are susceptible to the charms of a woman. Duh. <laughs> That's obvious, right? But again, we live in a day where we want to pretend that certain relationship realities don't exist. But what I want us to see as we begin to talk about this is that man being susceptible to the charms of a woman is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it is something that God himself created. If you go back to the book of Genesis, when God created Adam and he brought Eve to him, he brought her there so that she could be a helper for him. She could be someone to work alongside him as he executes the will of the Lord on the earth, as they go forth and multiply and subdue the earth, that she would be there right alongside him to help him. By her influence, she would be able to inspire him to do the things God has called him to do, inspired to great deeds, and also by that same influence to bind him to the ways of the Lord where he maybe would be tempted to go elsewhere. A woman has influence over her man. God made it that way so that Adam would wake up every morning, look at Eve and say, I'm going to go do something great today. Or maybe he was tempted to go away, but he thought, no, I, I can't because I couldn't do that to her. We still understand this, don't we? And there's a lot of positive examples of this in Scripture. We find one of them in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 1, we read about Aksa, who was the daughter of Caleb, remember? And they said, hey, whoever can take the city of Kiriath Arba gets to marry my daughter Aksa. And Othniel said, I'm all up for that. And out he went and conquered the city, and he marries Aksa. And then as they do, Aksa comes to her father and says, hey, if you're going to give us this mountainous city, you need to also give us springs of water so that we have a water supply. So there she's operating like a Proverbs 31 woman and already thinking about how are we going to lead this household here. And she's actually held up as the ideal Hebrew woman in the book of Judges to be contrasted even with someone like Delilah, whether or not Delilah was a Hebrew. But you see how Aksa in inspired Othniel to do the righteous thing by taking the city. Deborah as well in Judges chapter 4. Although Barak was a bit of a wimp and wouldn't do it, she's trying to inspire him, go out and conquer and win this battle like you're supposed to. I don't, I don't want to do that. She said, you don't want a woman to get credit for your battle. Just go out there. Now, Deborah was not uh, his wife, but it's, a, it's another example of a woman inspiring a man to do good things. Ruth I love to talk about Ruth chapter 3 because it's exactly what it sounds like when you read that story. Go get all dolled up and ask Boaz to pretty please redeem the land. He'll get to marry you if he does that. Naomi and Ruth, in fact, are, are working together. And it's not sneaky. It's not 
Well, maybe it is a little tricky, but it's not wicked. They're working together in order to use Ruth's womanly charms and influence over Boaz to get him to do the right thing and thereby redeem her family. That's why Ruth is a hero. In fact, the hero of the story, even more than Boaz is. 1 Samuel 25, you have Abigail. Remember when David was uh, insulted by Nabal? He had been guarding all of Nabal's flocks, and he said, hey, I've been taking care of your flocks for you. I've been your hired security, and there's a festival coming up. Do you think you could send us a little something so that we could celebrate? And Nabal said, I don't know who you are, and I don't care who you are, and you're lucky I don't turn you over to Saul right now. Well, you didn't insult a man like David like that. So David said, all right, guess we're having the festival in his house this year. And they, they mount up and they're riding off to fight this guy. And what did Abigail do? She gets all the stuff that they should have gotten. She rides out to David, falls down on her knees and says, David, I know my husband is an idiot. Go read it. It says that. I know he is. But look, please just, you know what? Accept my apology on his behalf and I'll give you these things. And David's like, you're a wise woman because I was about to come in and kill your husband. And uh, he ends up getting having a heart attack or a stroke of some kind and dies, and David marries Abigail. She is that kind of woman. Even Bathsheba in 1 Kings chapter 1. Now, she is portrayed rather negatively in another story. It's debatable whether or not it was her fault at all. But in 1 Kings chapter 1, when David's oldest son is trying to take the, the throne for himself, and he's got the support of the army and all these influential people, Bathsheba comes to David, who's an old man at this point, and says, David, you promised that Solomon would be the one to take the throne. He says, yes, it is. She goes, then you've got to do something about your other kid. And thereby using the influence she had, she pushed David to put his foot down with his child, which is something he was very often reluctant to do, if you remember. These are great examples. And I'm sure you can lift up a bunch of examples in your own life of your mother or your wife or your grandmother or whatever it might be. Hopefully you've got a daughter that you're proud of that does the same thing. This is something that the New Testament encourages wives to be doing actively in their marriages. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to be in this passage a lot tonight. We're going to end up reading the whole thing, but we'll start with the first two verses. Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So Peter says, wives, submit to your husband. Walk uprightly, walk respectfully, walk in purity, so that even if your husband doesn't believe, when he sees the way you conduct yourself, you can influence him towards the gospel. And if that's true of husbands that are not believers, how much more so is it true of those who are already predisposed to serve Christ? This influence that God gave to women is a positive, important thing that the Bible takes very seriously and, and kind of frankly, so sort of to the point where we don't like to talk about it, right? However, when Eve usurped Adam's place in the Garden of Eden, she became the point of Adam's greatest failure. In Genesis 3, verse 6, she ate of the fruit and gave it to her husband who was with her. God had created the order that man would be head over the woman and together they would be over the animal kingdom. Well, now you've got the husband listening to the wife who's listening to the serpent. It's completely inverted. And now, because of sin, that influence which God has given to women has become corrupted by sin. In fact, the first sin of a woman was to usurp the authority of her husband and to manipulate him to do the same thing, which does not, of course, absolve him of responsibility. We'll get to that. 
But because this very good, holy influence that God has given to women has been corrupted by sin, sexual and emotional manipulation has been the downfall of many a godly man. And the Bible's full of those examples, too. We need look no farther than Jacob in Genesis chapter 30. He ended up with two wives, which we need to remember that Leah was not innocent in that story, was she? As she did what her dad told her to do by pretending to be her sister on her, on her sister's wedding night. But Jacob ends up with two wives, and both of his wives, in their contest to see who could have the most children, encouraged their husband to have sexual relations with their maidservants, to take concubines into their marriage. Joseph, in Genesis 39, who resisted the temptation of Potiphar's wife, but ended up getting thrown into prison because not only was she trying to manipulate Joseph, she was lying and scheming and manipulating her husband as well. 1 Kings 21 talks about Jezebel, the wife of Ahab. Now, the Bible says Ahab was the most wicked king that Israel ever had. But it also says that he was incited by his wife Jezebel. And if you read the story if I can say this carefully, it's not to, again, absolve Ahab here. It's not so much that Ahab was an egregiously wicked man as much as he was a weak man that gave in to the wicked temptations of his wife, which amounts to the same thing, you understand. Solomon, how about Solomon? 1 Kings 11 says, Solomon loved many foreign women. That, that kind of sums up his character, doesn't it? And not only was he taking more wives than he should have, through that, they influenced and manipulated him to start building altars and temples to false gods in the land of Israel. The son of David was introducing temples to Baal and Asherah and Molech because of his wives. Amos chapter 4, by the way, take some time and read Amos chapter 4. It's a uh, rather sarcastic passage from the prophet where he compares the women of Samaria to the fatted cows of Bashan. He does. And there's a whole meatpacking illustration he uses if you follow it through. But why does he compare them that way? He says, you are inducing your husbands to oppress the poor so that you can increase your lifestyle. He wasn't calling out just the husbands. He was calling out the wives too. How about King Herod in Matthew chapter 14? That's a whole weird story, isn't it? Where he marries his brother's wife and then his brother's, well, his niece slash stepdaughter now comes in and does a provocative dance for him and all of his drunk buddies. I'll give you anything you want. And then her and her mother scheme together to say, behead John the Baptist and give us his head. Revelation chapter 2 talks about the church of Thyatira that had another woman that is compared to Jezebel who is corrupting not just the teaching but also the morals of all the men in the church. This might not be popular to talk about, but this is biblical truth that we have to face. That men are susceptible to a woman's influence for good or for evil. And they have to be prepared for that and our women have to be warned against becoming that. Even in the book of Revelation, the great city of the Antichrist is compared to a harlot because the image is so strong that it's the best thing the Lord could do to compare. Meanwhile, the church is compared to the pure virgin, right? Proverbs 31, verse 3. It's a very interesting verse that I think sums up the story of Samson pretty well. It says that this verse, this section was written by the mother of King Lemuel. We're not quite sure who Lemuel is, but tradition tells us that that's actually Solomon. If it is Solomon, that means that this verse comes from Bathsheba herself. 
If it's not Solomon, it still came from somebody's mother. So this is a woman that wrote this, Proverbs 31.3. Why do I say that? Because I think it's a little stronger when you realize that it comes from someone's mama. Proverbs 31.3 says, Do not give your strength to women, my son, your ways to those who destroy kings. Give not thy strength unto a woman, my son. It is the responsibility of a man to resist handing over his strength to a woman's charms. A man is to lead his wife and to serve the Lord above all things, even above his wife. Maybe Adam could have convinced us with a really powerful argument that, you know, my wife, yeah, Eve was sinning, but I'm supposed to stand there right by her and I'll, I'll, I'll follow her even to the gates of hell. It's like, that's a terrible, terrible thing to say, Adam. You should have stopped her, first of all. And if you couldn't have stopped her, you should have chosen the Lord over her. Now, how can you say that? Because Jesus did. Luke 14, 26 says, If you do not hate your father and mother, your wife and your children, then you're not worthy of me. He's saying you're supposed to hate them? No, he's saying your love for me as the Son of God, by comparison to that of your wife or your husband, ought to be so much that it's like you hate the other one. So Samson and Delilah provide us twin warnings in this passage. And uh, Catelyn asked me tonight, what are you preaching on tonight? I said, well, there's pretty much two lessons. Fellas, don't be like Samson. Ladies, don't be like Delilah. <laughs> Men are not to give in to sinful temptation, and women are not to offer sinful temptation. The corruption of male-female relations has been a major theme of the book of Judges, starting with the picture of Othniel and Oxa going down to Deborah and Barak and that whole weird story, to where Jael is the one who kills Sisera, and to when Jephthah even kills his own daughter. Now we're getting down to Samson and Delilah. It's deteriorating. And it's even the theme of all creation, that the relations between man and woman were ruptured in the very beginning. And it's been a problem ever since. So let's look now, verse 6 through 14. A familiar story, I'm sure it is for you. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson! But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. You got to picture her pouting in this story. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. So Delilah. Delilah, maybe not a name you'd choose for your daughter. 
She begins this seductive game. She's trying to ask Samson, what, what do I have to do? Why are you so strong? What, 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 is there anything anybody could do to make you not so strong? And you might wonder, just reading it cold like this, like, what kind of idiot would answer that question? Like, well, how dumb does Samson have to be to answer this? Well, I, I think he is dumb, and maybe overconfident is a better word. But I also think you need to think of how this would have been asked here. This wouldn't have just been like over dinner, like, oh, hey, by the way, Samson, uh, why don't you tell me how, how you're so strong and, and, and use details so I'll know how to take away your strength. This would have been playful. This would have been flirtatious. This would have been probably be happening close to or even during the act that he should not have been committing with her. That she's trying to seduce him, maybe playfully, like, I'm such a weak little girl. What could I do to, to tie you up and make you not so strong? This does tell us, by the way, that Samson's strength was voluntary. Because it's kind of unclear earlier. Like, did Samson have strength all the time or just when the Holy Spirit rushed upon him? It seems pretty plain from this story that this was all the time. That he was strong all the time or else it wouldn't have been so famous and so known. Because then he could have just answered, look, I, look I'm not strong, super strong now, just, just sometimes. It also maybe explains why Samson got himself into the situations he did, because he knew I can punch my way out of it if anything goes wrong. Well, three times he lies to her, and each time he's getting a little closer to the truth here. First of all, bowstrings and ropes, then the loom weaving the locks of his hair, which could also be translated the braids of his hair. You need to remember a picture of Samson with long hair, probably in what we would call dreadlocks today and braided in such a way so that it wouldn't be getting in his way. Also, his beard, by the way. That's a part everybody always misses. His beard would never have been cut either, because that was part of the Nazarite vow. No doubt believing this is all a game, because he'd wake up and, you know, why did you do this two or three times? Because he thinks it's a game. He thinks they're, they're playing with each other. He thinks she's teasing him. And he's teasing her. I'm not actually going to tell her what's going on. And he's unconcerned either way. The first tactic that Delilah used against him was seduction. And this is something that still goes on to this day and is part of that influence that we talk about that a woman has over a man. So we need to talk about this. What is this? Well, the definition is to use beauty to inflame his passions and influence him. To be a seductress is to be a woman that uses her looks, uses her words, in order to usually sexually convince a man to do something. And a woman does not need to be some great beauty, some Helen of Troy, in order to do this. And this is something that all women are capable of doing. And I will say once again, in its place, this kind of influence can be a good thing. It adds a lot of joy to both the husband and the wife's life. In fact, that early flirtation is part of what made that dating relationship you had so much fun. Because you knew that she was coming on to you, and it excited you, gentlemen, and you wanted to be with her forever. It's part of what God uses to bind a husband and wife together. And in a marriage relationship, you should hope that this kind of playfulness, this playful seduction, kind of a, a strong word to use, but we'll just use it, has a place within the marriage, and in fact, to maintain it. Proverbs 5, verses 18 through 20. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? The Bible, I mean, read Song of Solomon in case you're not sure about this. The Bible is very 
pro love and romance within the context of marriage and even that initial attraction before marriage. God approves and endorses marital ro romance and sex for procreation, that he can produce godly children, for pleasure in order to bring joy to the husband and the wife, and also for protection. 1 Corinthians 7 tells us that the husband does not have a right to his own body, nor does the wife have the right to her own body. That together they become a protection against sexual immorality, which is why we talked about it before. You don't get to withhold yourself sexually from your wife or your husband. Well, I'm just not interested, or I'm just not attracted to her anymore. Doesn't matter. You don't have the right to say no, because you're going to set up the one you've devoted your life to, to temptation. Which is why I'm saying these charms and this, this way of, of provoking attraction can be a good thing when it's done the right way. However, when charms like this are used to stimulate lust or adultery or any other such sin, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. And we know from the way scripture lays it out, the better something is, the worse it becomes when it's corrupted. Which is why the, the wonders of your romantic love and life with your wife or your husband, when it goes bad, becomes the most hurtful and shameful thing that we know of. In Proverbs chapter 6, you read through the book of Proverbs, Solomon was writing it to his son. So he had an awful lot to say about handling women. And in verses 24 through 25 of chapter 6, he identifies three different aspects that a man should watch out for when dealing with a woman. Number one, he says, a smooth tongue. Watch out for a woman with a smooth tongue. This is speaking in such a way to stir up curiosity, to stir up interest, making implied promises, or offering compliments that are really not quite appropriate. It's flattering, but it's deadly. And this is what Delilah is doing. She's sweet-talking Samson. You're so strong. Tell me how you're so strong. Well, I am so strong. I mean, all shucks, Delilah. You know, that's, you got to watch out for that. And ladies, these are the kinds of things that you ought to not fall into yourself. The second thing he says to watch out for is, is beauty. Now, there's, of course, nothing more splendid than a woman's beauty. But when it is displayed with lewd intentions, when a woman is displaying her beauty immodestly, showing off not just how beautiful she is, but showing too much skin, strutting around in such a way that people notice her who probably shouldn't be noticing her in that way. Even the Bible talks about being gaudy, just overdoing it to the point that you're trying to draw attention to yourself. That's when we get into the realm of sin and wickedness. He also says to watch out for her eyelashes. Now, he's not talking about false lashes or anything like that, ladies. He's talking about flirtation as a whole and the way that a woman can present herself through her movements, through her touch, through her long looks, through the subtle cues that she offers. Such things have power. And why do they work? Because men find those things exciting. It's flattering. It's exciting. It's stimulating, which is why Samson stayed. Even though he knew good and well this woman is trying to steal something from him. He said he likes the way she made him feel. And this is why women do this. And I found, you know, I was a youth pastor and usually would have the ladies do this. But very often, you know, kids always think they're so slick when they're like 15, 16 years old. And they think that nobody can tell that they're like flirting and stuff. And we just would like, it's like, it's like watching a, you know, a bad sports game. We're, like the leaders would be over there like commentating to each other like, what is he doing? <laughs> Like, what, what does she think she's going to, does she think no one notices what she's doing? Every now and then we'd have to step in and say, hey, 
sweetheart, you can't do that. And inevitably, what? 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 You know what you're doing, and you need to stop doing it. But a Christian woman is not to display or do those things for anyone other than her husband. And if you're unmarried, and you don't know who your husband is yet, that means you need to reserve those things until that day comes. Song of Solomon says, do not awaken love until it pleases. Meaning don't go there until you are able to satisfy the desires that it is going to arouse. 1 Peter 3, continuing that passage from before, verses 3 and 4 now, still speaking to the wives, Peter writes, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Ladies, you've got to watch yourself that you do not let yourself fall into these things. Maybe if you feel like you're not getting the attention from your husband that you, you maybe even ought to have. Or maybe if you are not married and you're starting to worry if you're ever going to find somebody, so you start compromising in these ways. Or maybe you're like, well, I'm, not, I'm never going to go anywhere else. I've found, just in my own experience, that especially women who are extremely beautiful and extremely attractive and are used to a lot of male attention, when they get married, they can have a hard time that they're not supposed to solicit that anymore because they feel like they're missing something. But that's just part of the adjustment that you have to go through. That that season of your life is over and now it's time to keep yourself for your husband. But not only this, ladies, and I ask you to watch yourself, because again, I don't think this is something that this church has a problem with, but you need to watch your sisters as well. You ought to, ladies, not just for your own sake, but for his. When your husband is having an encounter with a woman and you see what she's up to, you need to say something. Maybe not to her, but to him. Say, hey, watch out for that girl. She's trouble. Now, sometimes fellows can be a little dense, and we're like, oh, she seems perfectly friendly. You know, it's like, yeah, a little too friendly, right? Oh, you're just being jealous. I promise you I'm not. You need to be able to have those conversations with one another. And gentlemen, if your wife says that, you need to listen to her. If she comes and visits you at the job, and she sees the way you interact with some woman there that you haven't thought twice about, but she says, that's got to stop. Out of respect for her, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. That's a good way to make sure that she stays in love with you, by the way. And also, ladies, if you see other Christian sisters starting to do these things, you need to step in and put a stop to it. Because the temptation is so strong and the pressure is so strong upon, especially our young ladies today, that this is how you have to be. And if you don't look like this, you're not posting things like this, and you're not talking like this, then you're never going to find a good man. First of all, it's not true. But second of all, it's not going to be good for her. So we've got to make sure that we're not too embarrassed to have conversations like these because a church is supposed to be a community where we shape and, and, and help lead in all areas of this life. But not only to the girls, guys. Gentlemen, we need to have more strength and pride than to, get, to fall for these things. You need to be able to endure this and do the right thing. You're going to have this happen. You're going to have women throw themselves at you for various reasons. Now, maybe they just want to get a discount at whatever job you work at. But still, have a little self-respect and say, nah, you can't get me like that. Have a respect for your wife and your children, too. And say, yeah, nice try, but I've got all that I need at home. Thank you very much. I said that, actually. Where Zach and I were at a youth group event. I think we were at the zoo. 
And uh, some, some just, just hold on, okay? <laughs> Let me tell the story first. That's weird that it was at the zoo, but it was. But some guy walks up to Zach and me and he's like, dude, check that chick out over there. And, you know, you, you did one of these, kind of like, what? Whoa, okay. <laughs> did one of those. Like, he's like, dude, can you believe that? Like that? I said, man, I'm married. I'm just fine. Thank you. He goes, what? I'm like, yeah, no thanks. I'm perfectly happy. He's like, all right. And he kind of walked away, like, super embarrassed. But he should have been embarrassed. Because I'm like, look, this is, this is not something I'm interested in. Because I'm, I'm happy with what I have, and I would never jeopardize that for a moment of pleasure or for feeling good about myself. So this is the first tactic she tries. Notice it didn't work. The seductive thing didn't work on Samson. But let's see what will work. Verse 15. And she said to him, maybe some of you have heard a sentence kind of like this in your lifetime. How can you say I love you? When your heart is not with me, you have mocked me these three times, and you've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. <laughs> and he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. So this is when Delilah changes her tactics. Instead of seduction, our second, she tries nagging. Nagging says she pressed him hard. Pressed or wouldn't leave it alone. Pouting, whining, complaining. Leaning, Good morning, honey. Good morning. Turns to the side, doesn't let him kiss her lips. Whoa, what's wrong? Well, you won't tell me how strong you are. What difference does it make? I love you. You don't really. How can you say you love me? You know, you make breakfast then. And she storms off. <laughs> what did I do? I just woke up. I just... And she pressed him hard, hard, until finally his soul was vexed to death, whining and complaining. Not in the throes of passion, not in the heat of battle could Samson be beaten. But for the second time, since chapter 14, he gave in to a contentious woman. And he gave up the secret of his strength. The Bible frowns just as much on an annoying shrew as it does on a flirtatious tart. Proverbs 21, verse 9. Proverbs 21, verse 9. This is the verse so nice, God put it in there twice. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. It's also in Proverbs 25, 24. Now, Solomon had a thousand wives, so he knew a thing or two about this. Because I would rather have like, my own little like, spot in the corner of the roof than be in this giant palace with that woman. Proverbs 21:19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. So he's like, quarter of the house? Nah, I'd rather be in the desert right about now. Proverbs 27, 15 through 16. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. <laughs> you got to wonder how he came up with these. Like when they say that they're trying to patch a leak and it's like, bloop, bloop, bloop. He goes, you know what that reminds me of? <laughs> Verse 16 says, to restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. You ever known a woman that when she loses control, 
If she's not in handcuffs, there's no controlling her. Solomon knew a few of those. Now, we can laugh at this, but guys, that's not just funny observations. That's scripture. That's God's opinion on this. And this is why we need to hear this, because a temptress will be quickly identified and shunned in most churches, as she should be. If some girl walks in and she's trying to, to seduce the boys or trying to strut around, she's going to be identified, she's going to be dealt with, and hopefully she's either going to repent or she's going to leave. But a nagging wife can often go unnoticed and sometimes even be approved of in the way that she acts. She's a boss babe. She's a strong woman. She's independent. She doesn't let anybody tell her anything. Yeah, my husband's not my boss. You don't own me. And the way she speaks and shrieks at her husband and puts him down in public, maybe she doesn't even do it in public, but that constant nagging, that constant annoyance. It's unfortunate that when pastors get together, just about everybody, and I'm saying I'm not in this category, so I can say this very cleanly here, just about every pastor can tell a story about a couple women in the church that make his life miserable because they won't leave silly stuff alone. And you say things like, what do you say to her husband? And he goes, he's no help. She does it to him too. Making the point that this kind of thing is just as much condemned in Scripture, but for some reason it is more acceptable in society and even in the church. But this is not God's way. Because such tactics can be just as wicked in the destruction of a man. And we have to address it here when it comes up. Some women delight in tormenting men. You've probably met some of these. Maybe they've been through something personally. Maybe they were hurt by their dad or they were hurt by a boyfriend or something. And so they get a certain pleasure out of making men miserable. If you ever worked in a service industry and you've ever waited tables or something like that, you'll meet these people. She walks in and she sits down and you know in the first minutes this is not going to be pleasant. Sometimes women, believe it or not, have political reasons for this. Their political ideology about feminism or whatever it is tells them, I can't treat a man well because if I do, I'm somehow giving in to the patriarchy or something. And some people are just cruel. You know, some people are just cruel and they like to hurt people. But whatever it is, men can be driven to sin because of this. You read about Ahab, for example. Ahab was willing to let Naboth's vineyard go, but Jezebel comes in and emasculates him and ends up murdering a man. Herod did not want to chop off John the Baptist's head, but his wife and his niece daughter colluded to make that happen. Not only can it drive men to sin, it can drive men to depression, just to be miserable. Maybe you've met a beaten down man that you just wonder, why is he like this? Why does he just give in on everything? And then maybe you meet his wife and you figure it out. It also can lead to resentment. To men that maybe they don't, get, they don't get sad, they get angry. Maybe they don't have the strength in the moment to throw it back. But when that moment goes away, then I can start to plot my revenge. Maybe not, obviously, violent revenge, but I'll, I'll find my ways to get back at her. Crises build up over a long time. Sometimes we see where a man will run off and be with another woman, and it surprises everybody. And not to excuse what he did, but the church perhaps should have identified the way his wife was treating him and addressed that. You're driving him away. You're driving him away. This comes back to a refusal to submit. Ephesians 5.24 says, Let a wife submit to her husband as unto Christ. 
well, he's not God. Well, the Bible says submit to him like you submit to Jesus. Not a lot of wiggle room there. It's a refusal to accept one's place. Some women just don't like being women. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says the head of, of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is a man, her husband. They don't like the fact that that's the way God made it. And ultimately, it comes down to refusing to acknowledge God's authority. Genesis 3.16, God told Eve in the curse, when he was pronouncing the curse, he said, your desire shall be for your husband. Better translated, against your husband. Contrary to your husband. Desiring to be over your husband. But God says, but he shall rule over you. He says, because of what you've done, Eve, because you've introduced sin into your heart, you will no longer be happy with that helpmeet role that I gave you. And you're, you and your daughters are going to spend all of history trying to take it back, but I'm still not changing my mind on this. This attitude of, got to demand my own, does that have anything to do with Christ? 1 Peter 3, 5, and 6, finishing this section now. So this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Some women don't even want to be called by their husband's last name. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Some men don't know how to handle this. There are men who, if a woman were to come prancing around right in front of him and throw herself at him, he'd be able to resist and say no. But if a woman were to constantly, through that drip, drip, dripping that Solomon talks about, doesn't know how to handle that. They get worn down over time. We need to be strong, gentlemen. If you know what's right, then do what's right. And don't let a woman <coughs> nag you into doing what's wrong, like Samson did. Why are we talking about this? It's offensive. Because it's right here. This is what happened to Samson. All of his strength was useless in the presence of a contentious woman. Guys, don't talk to each other like that. Because you talk to a guy like that long enough, you're going to take it outside. Right? Can't do that with your wife. If you do, then there's going to be some blue lights flashing outside your house before too long. There are some women that know that and use that to their advantage. And will even go so far as to strike and beat up their husbands because they know he's not going to call anybody because it would be too embarrassing for him. That's not how a Christian woman conducts herself. And gentlemen, you need to know about this. And moms, like Solomon's wife warned him, you got to warn your sons too. Get to know those girls he's dating or that he's looking at marrying. And say, look, she's great when she's great, but I see the way she talks to you. Let's fast forward that 30 years when you're not Twitter-pated anymore. Are you sure you want to be living with her? You also should check each other. Simple rule, don't put down your spouse in public, period. Only say anything that is going to boost them up. And then, then you start applying that to private too. Don't say anything to put down your spouse in private. Learn this message. Learn this well. And don't be afraid to talk about it because it somehow seems not biblical. It's absolutely biblical. It's what brought Samson down. Verse 18 through 22. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again. Maybe that's why she was so upset. Maybe they had left and said, Forget it. It's useless. You can't do it. For he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. 
And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Something about the way Samson said at this time, Delilah knew he had told her the truth this time. And she calls for the Philistine lords. And this is such a despicable thing that she does here. She gets him in a position of vulnerability. Says, come on, lay your head in my lap. Lay down. She's stroking his head. He falls asleep in her lap. And again, I had to read the whole passages about like, well, how did he not wake up when this was going on? Because he trusted her. Because he trusted her. Maybe she got him drunk. We don't know. And it says she began to torment him. What does that mean? I think that it's just simply referring to the fact that she was cutting his hair. That his hair was being cut. She's removing his strength. And Samson's miraculous, lion-ripping-apart, gate-lifting, jawbone-slaying strength departed. Why now? Because this was the last straw. There's an interesting study to be made about how Samson slowly over time violated his Nazarite vows. First of all, by reaching into the carcass of the lion and taking the honey. By going to his wedding feast and presumably drinking alcohol there, although it doesn't specifically say that. You maybe could give him an excuse for touching the corpses of the Philistines because God had raised him up to do exactly that. But now he's given an eyes-open betrayal of his Nazarite vow. The other things, maybe God goes, he's a kid. The Bible says God specifically overlooks the sins of our youth. Aren't you glad? He's a... He's a super strong teenager. What do you want to do? Right? But now he's, an old, he's older now. He's middle-aged. He's grown. He's a man now. Not a little boy. And he, to this woman's face, tells her where the secret of his strength is. And by the way, it was not the fact that his hair was long. It's what that hair represented. That he was devoted to the Lord. And Samson rises to face them. But... Of all tragedies, he did not know that the Lord was gone. There's a whole sermon to be preached. You preach a sermon series on that verse right there. To be so distant from the Lord that when God departs, you don't even realize it. But he's captured. He's blinded. The one whose name meant sunshine goes to the woman whose name means darkness, and he leaves that place in darkness. And he sent back to Gaza, which is where he had lifted up the gates, and he was set to ground flour. Now, you mustn't think of him using that big, giant millstone that came into use in later times, where he's pushing it like Conan the Barbarian or something like that. Millstones at this time would have been something that was done more or less in your lap with a millstone like this, like a giant pestle grinding, grinding flour. It was a woman's job. The men would harvest the wheat. They would thresh the wheat, they'd bring it in, and the women would grind the grain. So they specifically take Samson away and force him to do women's work. They're shaming him. They're emasculating him. And there he ends up, at the end of all of it, blind, weak, in the prison of his enemies, grinding flour with the other ladies. Proverbs 5, I'm going to read selected verses from this section, starting at verse 3. The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. 
Verse 8, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. This is what happens to men who give their strength away to women who allow their will to be twisted through whatever method toward wickedness for the sake of sexual or emotional satisfaction. Regret and guilt. Leverage from somebody else over your life. Losing money, losing your family, your reputation gone. And for what? For a moment of pleasure? For compliments that you should have been seeking from your wife instead of a foreign woman? Now listen, tonight we've been speaking to the women, and rightly so, because Delilah provides a very strong example of a lot of things the Bible talks about. But the responsibility lies with the men, with Adam. Adam means man. We have a responsibility to stand strong against these things. Not to say that's what women do and they're awful. No, you shouldn't let them get away with that in your life. God's not going to say, well, yeah, Samson, you told her the secret of your strength, but she was nagging you an awful lot. It was Samson's responsibility to stand up and say, I don't care what you say to me. I'm not betraying my Lord. You have to stand strong in Christ, gentlemen. You need to have, actually have a relationship with the risen Lord that is stronger than the relationship you share with your bride. Because not only will the relationship with Christ give you a better relationship with your bride, but it will learn to take precedence when it needs to take precedence. You need to commit yourself every day to do what is right. It's amazing how much of the Christian life goes back to those daily devotions. Start the morning with Jesus. When I think about how I'd like my kids to remember me, I'd like them to remember coming down early in the morning and seeing their dad reading his Bible every day. I'm not great at that. I'm a night owl. I'll stay up till three in the morning like it's nothing. Getting up early is a little harder for me sometimes. But that's something I'd like to be known for. I met God every day. I forget who it was who said this, but it said, if you fail to find Christ in the morning, you will scarcely find him the rest of the day. Start the day, gentlemen. You, maybe you, you do things every day. You wake up, you shower, you read the paper, you scroll online, whatever. You go to the gym. You look over your work every day. You can meet with Jesus every morning. To determine that today, nobody, not even my wife, is going to take me away from Christ. I'm hoping you're able to sit there and say, no, she doesn't want to take me away from Christ. Good. But still, even so. And to refuse to be turned to the right or the left by anyone, especially not some temptress who comes into your life. You've got to take control of your household men. You've got to become the leader. You've got to insist upon God's truth in your life. And for some reason, we've got this thought that a man leads his wife and leads his family, but he's never to tell the wife how she's to conduct herself. That is absolutely not true. The Bible says we are to wash our families and our wives, especially in the water of the word. That it is your job to disciple your wife out of these tendencies that might be sinful, even and especially if they affect you. Well, she's going to think I'm using God to solve our arguments. Well, she can think that, but don't do that. If that's what you're doing, stop. But if it's God's will that's at stake, you shouldn't matter what she says. And I would say that most Christian wives, even if they are in the wrong, are prepared to be led to follow Jesus Christ closer. 
insist upon God's truth. Who's an example of this? Job. Remember Job? Lost everything, all his possessions, all of his children. Then God afflicted his health, had boils coming up all over his body. He's sitting there and said he had a piece of pottery where he would scrape the boils when they would come to a head. Miserable existence. And in Job 2.9, his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. I wonder if he expected his wife to be the one that would bring that temptation to him. But he said to her in verse 10, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Notice what's going on there. You speak as one of the foolish women. So not typical for her. She was a godly woman, but she was just as beaten down by these things as he was, but she was taking her cues from him. And she said, I'm, I can't take this anymore. We, we deserve to throw this back in God's face and walk away. And he says, you know better than that. I'm not going to hear this from you. Even with nothing left, sitting in the ash heap, scraping off his boils, he has enough presence of mind to lead his wife in righteousness. 1 Timothy 2 tells us that one of the reasons God put men in charge of the church is because Adam was not deceived, but Eve was. That there are certain temptations the Bible talks about that women are susceptible to, that men are not. And God expects men with their ability to stand firm and hold steady, even while under fire. He says, we're not going to let what happened in the Garden of Eden happen in God's church. And I know we don't like to hear that, but that's what Paul said, and we've got to sit with it. Be proud, men, of your strength. I'm not talking about arrogance and sinful pride in here. I mean, really, be proud of the fact that you're a strong man, that I'm incorruptible, that I don't care who they throw at me, I'm not giving in to it. Don't just be one of those men that is faithful and kind and loving because you never had the opportunity to be unfaithful. But that doesn't matter what happens. Like Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. That you are immovable in the face of danger. You're immovable in the face of seduction. And even when somebody is going to be nagging at you with that drip, drip, dripping that Solomon talks about, even if it's just for a season or related to one certain issue, you say, I stand firm in Christ and I won't give that away because I can't control my impulses. What does this mean practically, guys? No more flirting. I've never, I've never cheated on my wife. All right, fine. Stop making eyes at that woman. Stop it. Stop conducting yourself in such a way that invites women to approach you. Oh, I always say no, yeah, but you're trying to get validation from the way other women look at you. I don't care if it's at work, I don't care if it's at the gym or here, God forbid. It also means no more pornography. No more feeding strange lusts that your poor wife will never be able to satisfy. And that's your fault, not hers. Don't do that. There's a whole industry growing up of men that are sending money away to women they've never met to get in front of a camera and perform lewd actions for them. And young girls are going off to do this because there's money to be made there. Not in God's church. No more withdrawal when your wife picks a fight with you. We talked about this in the love and respect class. When she comes at you like Job's wife did, you rise up like Job did. I'm not just going to, okay, whatever you say, honey, I'll just, I'll let. how do you feel when that happens? You feel good about yourself? No, I'll tell you what you do. You walk away. Why do I always give in to her on that one? I was right. I was right. And I just, I ended up apologizing. What happened there? And then the next time it happens, maybe it happens again. And it's a little strong. Keep doing this. 
That woman, she never loved me anyway. That's not true. You're not stepping up. Well, she's in the wrong too. Yeah, we already talked to them. Now we're talking to you. Step up and say, fine, if, we're, if, if you need to have the conversation at this level, I'm prepared to have the conversation at this level. I just don't know. I'm not good with words. I know you're probably not. Certainly not as good as she is. Then choose your words carefully. Say, I, I, if this argument has to take an hour to resolve, it takes an hour to resolve. Because I'm not going to let this beat me down. It's not good for me. It's not good for her either. I'm not going to train her that this is how she get what's, gets what she wants from me. And no more daydreams, fellas. No more daydreaming about what it might have been like if I'd stuck with that girl from high school. Do you guys remember? I don't know if this happens. It doesn't seem like it happens quite as much. But when social media first burst on the scene, and not, not like kids and teenagers now, but when, it, when all the adults, moms and dads, got their first Facebook pages, how many marriages were destroyed because somebody connected with an old girlfriend or boyfriend they found online? What? How did that happen? They hadn't seen each other in 20 years. Because they've been spending 20 years playing those reels over in their heads, saying, if I were to ever see him again, I'll leave. I'd go with him, but I'll never see him again. So you thought you were safe. They thought they were safe. But they had already planned out in their minds what they were going to do, and they went for it. Women, you can help us by you being jealous for the strength of your own husband. Maybe when he's beaten down by life and his job and his boss and the news and everything that's coming at him, and he comes home, and you can, maybe you're upset about something, and you see that he's beaten down, and he's just going to give in to you. Just back off and give him an attaboy instead. You be jealous for the strength of your husband, even when he can't. You make sure that if he's going to be complimented and flirted with by some woman at the grocery store, all he does is laugh and say, you're going to have to do better than that. Yeah. The lady I got at home. Does that mean I've got to be some, some this or that? No. It means you be the one that is showing romance and flirtation and attraction to him. We've kind of outgrown that. I promise you, you haven't. Oh, he's not attracted to me anymore. Well, start trying again. Start trying again. Well, he said such horrible things to me. Well, guys, stop that. Guys can do that. Say horrible things to their wives. This is set standards that are impossible for anybody to meet. Stop doing that. But you keep trying. As, as Christians, our job is to be the ones that say, I won't give up. I'll, I'll turn the other cheek. I'll take the insult. I'll take her saying no to sex for the sixth month in a row. Because I'm going to keep on going. Because I love her too much to let this fade. Perhaps you've failed in this regard, gentlemen. And you've given up your manly role in your marriage. And you feel like, I'm the one over here grinding flour. And I should be the one out there slaying Philistines. The good news is what you see in verse 22. The hair of his head began to grow again. Was it magic hair? No, but I think this is what it's trying to say. Samson allowed his hair to grow again. Samson, in his mind, says, all right, God, we're starting over. We're starting over. That is that his hair was growing. He was not cutting his hair. God, I messed up. And I'm not expecting you to give me anything back. But this is what was said before I was born, and I'm going to commit to that. The story's not over yet, and neither is yours if you're here, guys. Neither is yours. Verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, this is actually, well, not yet, excuse me. Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God and they said, this is actually in Hebrew poetry here. Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. 
And when their hearts were merry, read, drunk, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. No doubt they were mocking him in his blinded state, weakened state. And they made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. So maybe they were getting him to try to pick things up and he was exhausted and that was his excuse. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord. First time anyone has called on the Lord in this story. The only one who does it is Samson. He said, oh Lord God. He uses the covenant name of God, Jehovah God. Please remember me. And please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. And he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. It's called going out like a boss. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. So we don't know how long after this was, but the Philistines are celebrating in Dagon's temple. Dagon traditionally is seen as a fish god, like a god of the sea. He's typically depicted as a mermaid. Although there are some now I was reading that see that that might not quite be correct. It's really irrelevant. It's a false deity. And they bring Samson out to mock him. This temple had pillars, had a balcony, and 3,000 people on the roof alone. And Samson positions himself and he prays. He calls out to the Lord. And many people have criticized Samson's prayer here as selfish. And maybe it was a little bit. But he is acknowledging the Lord God. He is asking to fulfill the role that he has been appointed from the time before he was born. And God answered his prayer. So maybe let's not be so judgmental that he's talking about his two eyes. And this is, this is quite an image here of Samson with his arms between the pillars. And no doubt they started laughing at him like, look at Samson. Oh, he thinks he's so strong. And then something cracks. You know, and everybody gets all quiet and Samson pushing. Stop him! And then finally, whoa, that big push. And it all comes crashing down. Killing them all and killing himself also. You know, when a man loses his strength, so to speak, and the roles reverse, because he's not standing up in the relationship and the woman is taking the lead that she shouldn't. No one's happy. And uh, women, least of all, by the way. And in case you ever wondered, when I teach messages like this that are sometimes are more pointed towards women in the wedding relationship, I get so many of y'all ladies coming up to me and saying, thank you. So I'm not sitting here beating anybody up. I'm preaching the word of God here. No one's happy in that situation. No one says, I'm so glad my husband just is a pushover. And just, you know, he just lets me do what I want and I don't have to listen to him. And I'm just so glad that he doesn't stick up for himself. And no one ever said that. And he's not happy. No guy's happy in that situation either. And I think culturally, we've been doing this for a long time. We've been letting the women emasculate the men. And the women aren't happy. And the men aren't happy. And God most certainly is not happy. And you're starting to see the snapback now, guys. If you're paying close attention, this is coming. Where there is an 
ultra-masculine and ultra-feminine response to these things that you're probably going to see in the next couple years. Maybe the next election will bring it to the forefront. We'll see. But it's out there. Because it's not the way God made it, and it's not happy. But here's the good news. God is always ready to hear a repentant cry and unleash the strength that is within a man's life. David messed up with women. He's certainly like top 10 in the Bible, right? That whole mess with Bathsheba. Killed his friend. Portrays himself as a hero to the nation of Israel. Well, Psalm 51 is his repentance for that. And you might think of like sins that like shouldn't be forgiven. That's, you know, in our carnal way, we'd probably put that on the list. But what did David say? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Even after adultery, possibly even rape of some kind, murder, lying, David says, God, I know that because I'm brokenhearted, you're not going to reject me. And God didn't. So Samson standing there, having gotten exactly what he deserves, standing there, and maybe you're one of those folks, he's kind of a sorry prayer he's offering, but guess what? God heard it and goes, I like what you think, Samson. Of course I forgive you. You go, he can't forgive him. Look at everything he did. Well, I'm just glad that God is that gracious. Samson ends up fulfilling his destiny, which was what? To begin to strike back against the Philistines. Despite all of his failures, he's brought to rest back with his fathers. That's a picture of honor in this society. Just as you will be if you purpose to serve the Lord, men, and not your own flesh. That I'm not going to let my emotions be played with. I'm not going to let myself be sexually tempted. I'm going to serve Jesus no matter what. That way I can have all of those things in their proper place with none of the guilt and baggage that goes along with it. And ultimately, you will be more satisfied by the proper use of your body than the illicit use of your body. Why? Because when you are using these things properly, it strengthens you. When you have a thriving relationship with your wife, emotionally, sexually, all of that, it builds you up. And you go out and you are Samson. And you conquer the world and nobody can tempt you. No one can stop you. You're incorruptible. But if you say, oh, this would feel good just to do it in a minute. Yes, you'll feel good. And then immediately after, how are you going to feel? Like garbage. <sighs> Was it worth it? No, of course not. The Lord's gifts are not mixed with pain and sorrow, guys. Then that strength can be used to slay the giants, to beat down the Philistines with a jawbone, to love a woman, to raise a family, to earn success in your life. Gentlemen, it's time to be strong the way the Lord wants us to be strong. And ladies, if that description of a man sounds pretty good to you, I, I think I'll take one of those. <laughs> I'd love to see him be more like that then you need to forsake your dreams of being a Delilah. Because I know it can be appealing. It can be validating. When I dress this way and talk this way, people come running to talk to me. And it feels good. And I feel, feel powerful. I feel like I've got something. Yeah, but it's hollow. It's hollow. Because you're burning bridges all around you. Instead, if you say, I'm going to be the kind of woman that will commit myself to one of these men, and do everything I can to draw that strength out of him. He will love you until the day he dies. And when you both step out to serve Jesus together, there's nobody that can stop you. Man does not need a whole cheerleading squad. He just needs you. Just the one.
And gentlemen, your lady is not, this is the other thing you hear all the time, ladies are always looking elsewhere, always looking for the next thing, always looking for the next, no, she just wants you to be the man God has called you to be. So we end again with the words of Proverbs 31.3, do not give your strength to women or your ways to those who destroy kings, my son.